Welcome to Talking Events. Um, we are at the offices of Richmond Event Management in the heart of Bristol, um, and today's podcast is going to be a straightforward one-on-one. Um, we've got Mike Richmond from REM in the studio with us, um, and we're going to be picking your brains, Mike. Thanks for joining us. It's okay. Um, we're going to look, first of all, at winter events um, and their growth. Um, I think it's fair to say maybe in the last, uh, let's say, 10 years, uh, there's certainly been a massive growth in how many winter events now take place. Um, let's start with that. What's your experience of the growth of that particular sector of our industry? Um, <clears throat> without a doubt, it's, um, it's probably um, equal to the busiest part of the summer now, uh, for us anyway. Um, you know, you've just got... Um, Halloween, bonfire night, um, and that now traditionally was November the 5th, it's now the 6th, the 7th, and in some circumstances the weekend after, depending on how November the 5th uh, lies. Um, and then you're into, before you know it, Christmas light switch-ons, they're now early November through to sort of the end, the, end, the start of December. Christmas markets, uh, Christmas events, um, we actually organise a thing called the Festival of Christmas in Portsmouth at the historic dockyard. Um, so our programme, if I'm uh, a good indicator for the rest of the industry, then uh, we find certainly almost now right up to Christmas um, from the end of October, just about as equally busy as the middle of the summer. Has it caught the industry out at all? Have winter events almost crept up on us and suddenly before we know it, oh crikey, we're as busy now as we are in the summertime and, and have we had to play catch up at all? Well, I used to interview staff to work at REM. I said, no, when, we, when we've got the end of the summer, you can have a rest. And then unfortunately that doesn't happen anymore because uh, you, you're planning your, you know, we did start talking about Christmas events in April. Um, and then when you've come out of the summer, you start picking them up and dealing with them. I think we've got 12 events between now and Christmas. Of different shapes and size um, and uh, you know I think that's healthy I don't think I've been caught out by it but I now realize that it is a full 12 month program um, um, there are there are people in the industry that just work the summer and go off and and have a nice relaxing winter um, we chose not to do that the only thing I say that we don't do really is we've always sort of been sacrosanct is not to do New Year's Eve events well, I think my staff would shoot me if I said we're <laughs> We're doing a big New Year's Eve event. Um, uh, I think they'd probably walk out the door. Um, but when we have finished with Christmas, we're properly finished. And, you know, January, February, it's uh, still winter, but that's our kind of downtime and plan yeah. it, start planning for the summer. So where we are now, uh, first week in October, when we're recording this episode, um, the planning for your winter events is already not just well underway, but almost nearing its completion in many respects. many respects it is. I mean, we've got our licences in, haven't we? If we're doing them in a few weeks' time, all our applications are in. Um, there's still a lot of logistics around that. Um, and actually deploying a large amount of crew and staff that um, is, is probably the largest challenge. Um, you know, with a succession of winter events, um, they tend to be smaller, but they tend to be um, of a duration, um, which can lead to bigger staffing requirements. Um, that that said, a fireworks night isn't quite as, mm-hmm. <laughs> hasn't got a great deal of longevity. But you know, we'll have three shows on that night, which we are site managing and producing two in Liverpool, one in Bristol. Um, so, you know, I've got to deploy staff here, there and everywhere for that. Um, and then we straight on to um, Christmas light switch-ons, you know, and we're involved with Bradford, Bath um, and others. Um, 
and Salisbury, um, just to name a few. Um, so there are a succession of sort of one-day events, and then you get into long markets um, that might be three or four weeks on site. In that respect, does it make it trickier to handle than, than some of the summer events, given that you've got a light switch on which will be, you know, perhaps a tea time event, a couple of hours, in, out, thank you very much, and then these markets, so logistically you're actually juggling more than you would be in the summer? Yeah, I mean, the market runs are longer than any event run on site in the summer. Uh, you, know, they, you know, you build them a month before and you take them out a month later, and you've still got to service those. So, you know, the, the, the nice short ones are nice. The, the, the long duration ones you know it's a hell of a commitment to send somebody to site for 33 days just before Christmas <laughs> <laughs> um, are, are most of these what's the mixture between private events or you know and, and uh, local authority events do we I mean from where I sit I see an awful lot of these winter events being organized by local authorities is that your experience of it yeah um, pretty much all of them are local authority apart from or they're either local authority or they're uh, the governance is with somebody akin to local authority whether that's a bid team or a city development team or whatever um, you know we had a rash of ice rinks at, at once upon a time we've now got a, a, a a sort of rash of markets um, appearing all around the country, Christmas markets. Um, and they start earlier and earlier and finish longer and later and later because that retail offer is, is there to be exploited. So, yeah, I, I guess uh, most of them are generated by local authority need um, uh, and and one or two of them are private. But the private ones um, are more of a party-based event than, than a public thing. Sure. How serious are the events now getting in terms of the level of production that's going into them? Um, they're certainly no longer just a bonfire and some fireworks in that respect. Um, they are meant to be about customer experiences. Um, they're also meant to be um, they're meant to be really a show in its own right. Um, and some local authorities very boldly take that on and, and you know produce major productions as part of their fireworks night shows. Um, probably save money by not doing bonfires because they can be hazardous to say the least. So so um, yeah, I think you'll find that. The, the short visitor patterns, but they're great shows, um, um, and therefore they require higher production values. When we were when we were actually down in, in in Bristol a few weeks ago before recording this, we were down at the uh, local authority event organisers group conference, um, and which was just over the road from your offices. Uh, one of the things that they were talking about during their conference was the the impact that the reduced budgets are having mm-hmm. as local, and it's something they've they've got to struggle with every year. But recently, they have seen some really big cutbacks, and they're talking about all sorts of different ways of fundraising and and, and sourcing sponsorship. Um, what impact does it have on winter events? Are local authorities more likely to uh, stay with their summer events program or their winter events program, or is it really you know horses for courses now? I think the tendency would to be stay with your summer events program because the risk weather risk is less. Um, although the, you know the authorities that we're working for are pretty bold in their output, they, they've, they've got an event strategy that this is the vision, this is what we want to do for the people in our cities, um, and you know they tend to be the the local authorities with with let's put it this way, without the budget restriction, um, they've all got budget restriction, but we, the, the the fact that their budgets are earmarked um, as critical, whether that's by an elected cabinet or whether that's by a mayor or whatever, that, that the events are the thing that make their city tick, then um, you don't find that they disappear. It's it's perhaps the smaller authorities that, that look at it and say, look, well, we're spending X on two hours show when we could spend that on a week's event in summer. Mm. Um, when it comes to, to, to planning these and, and, and executing them, um, 
what are the, the, the fundamental differences that you would have in your uh, programme of, of planning with a winter event compared to some and others? The obvious issue of things like light and the likelihood of cold weather, um, wet weather. Um, how, how does it impact you? Your toolkit's uh, slightly different, um, albeit the principles are the same. Um, you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to adverse, have, have some instance of adverse weather. Um, yeah, I mean, you probably could guarantee that in the summer in some, <laughs> yeah. some particular summers. Yes. But, um, so you, you actually go out with a different sort of toolkit. Um, and the staff that, you, that are working for you are probably the most important part of that toolkit. Um, so they need to be prepared for a long haul, a cold long haul, um, especially if you're sort of site manager or production manager of a 30-day of a market. Um, it's an endurance test, um, without doubt. Mm -hmm. um, so we tend to, what we tend to do is have a very thorough briefings with all our staff and make sure that they're out there, know what is coming. Once you get them embedded, they kind of run for themselves. But, um, it, you know, it's like any summer event. There's a... There's a, a build, a break, uh, and in the middle there's a show, um, and, and nothing really changed in that context. L let us take this with a pinch of salt, but uh, the Express, uh, the Daily Express uh, last month um, published an article saying that we're in a shock weather warning that we're going to experience the coldest winter for 50 years set to bring months of heavy snow and cold weather to the UK. Um, Sub-zero temperatures, etc., etc., etc. Now, as I said, let's take it with a pinch of salt. You know, this yeah, yeah. Is, this is tabloid journalism. But when it comes to something like the actual uh, infrastructure, the temporary infrastructure that you're putting in for events, so generators, yep. lighting for a, a, a stage, what different? You know, what have you actually got to do differently when you're identifying what's going to work and what's not going to work? Um, well. You'd want to be using suppliers and contractors that are up for it, up for that winter installation. Um, and I don't, I'm yet to find ones that aren't. Um, you probably need a bit more welfare. Um, mm -hmm. You certainly need to give people uh, rests and find places where they can get warm. Um, and you need to provide a lot of hot drinks. Um, but you don't necessarily need to do that in the summer. Um, so I guess it's all about, um, I think the contractors that we work with across the winter are used to it. Um, and whether that's in the summer or the winter, I mean, you can get as cold at Glastonbury as you can at Salisbury Christmas Market, to be mm. to be frank. Yeah. Uh, if we have really adverse weather conditions, then we've obviously got contingency plans in, showstop procedures, uh, and the fact that ultimately, if it's that bad, nobody's going to turn up. Um, so we always advise our clients and, and organisers to, to make sure that they're insured for that um, and make sure that they have got uh, a plan B or a wet weather plan. Um, because without doubt you'll get it during that period. We've already talked about budgets, um, but are, are most of the events that you're dealing with in the winter period free events? Uh, they all are, apart from one. Uh, sorry, the, the Festival of Christmas in Portsmouth is a ticketed event in Portsmouth Historic Dockyard. Um, been going now for the best part of 15 years, very successful, 30-odd thousand people. Um, that's the only ticketed one. The rest of them are free public events um, that would be attended um, by numbers up to fifteen, twenty thousand for a firework display um, in Liverpool, or um, light switch on in Bradford can be anything from seven thousand to seventeen thousand. Uh, logistically, not only are you dealing with different weather conditions due to the different time of year, but again, presumably a lot of these events are taking place in more urban areas as opposed to greenfield locations. Um, Again, let's look at some of the differences in, in dealing with that, particularly given in the, it's in the winter months. Well, when you build a market in the middle of a, uh, a city, city square, let's say, 
um, then you've got the challenges of, of dealing with the retail offer at the same time as you're building because that mm -hmm. city's still functioning. Um, you've got coach parties to deal with. You've got you've already got the Christmas shop going on, and you're building some more shops. <laughs> um, so effectively, you've got to deal with heavy crowds in around your build area. We're a lot tighter on that these days, where we actually you know fence the area off, and it's effectively a CDM site. Um, we're building temporary demountable structures, um, and that's where the welfare comes in, and the, and and the rest of it. So all the crew have got um, correct equipment for the jobs. Um, they are all pretty much city centre. Obviously, fireworks don't tend to work on November the 5th in city centres, but they are in parks adjacent to major populations. Uh, such a short visitor pattern, uh, something like that, you know. Um, we might be sending off... The share might start at 7 and finish at half 7. Everybody arrives at quarter to 7. So it's a different dynamic because it's cold. When it comes to the, the permanent infrastructure that you have in these, in these city centres and urban locations for the winter events, um, given that we've, they have in, uh, increased in their frequency and the size, um, how proactive have local authorities been in, in putting better permanent infrastructure into their city centres to allow you to deliver these events? I think the facilities nowadays are much better. Um, there are obviously ones that aren't great, but if you take a city like Bradford, for example, um, Beautiful new city park. It's got all the infrastructure mm -hmm. you need, all the power, all the water's there, the, light, the emergency lighting's there. It's a great example of a new bit of public realm that's been thought about. If I'm right in saying that, this is the, this is the one that has the water feature in the middle that yeah. can actually be drained to create and more not, space for correct, people. Correct, yeah, absolutely. And uh, in that design phase, the architects actually consulted the industry about what was required um, in order to make it a public open space that was attractive, but also in a space that could be used not just for winter events, but for summer events as well. And that's a really good... It's, it's, it's re rejuvenated the city centre in Bradford to a degree, and, it, and it's easier for a production company like us to go in because the services are already there. Um, there are other areas where... Other examples that, that aren't quite so clever when it comes to organising uh, public realm events. You know, the dreaded... Everybody likes street furniture if, you, if you're doing a daily shop, but... To the event organiser, it can be the blight of your production, you know, benches and trees and what have you. We'd all ideally like none of that, but um, unfortunately that doesn't make the place look pretty. So, um, you Absolutely, know, yeah. we've got to work around that. And weight restrictions and hidden chambers and things like that. There's, there's always challenges. If you do the, We've done the Bath Christmas light switch on for many years, um, and we, we close off Milsom Street, which is right in the middle of Bath, and we've got to shoehorn a Roger Barrett stage in there and uh, <laughs> hang some PA and lights and then whoever it is the celebrity turns it on it all happens in one day um and it's all gone by nine o'clock that night but you know so that's an interesting challenge uh, you haven't got anything to go on there because it's a heritage city there's there's no power there's no water there's no so you have to bring it all in well on the subject you mentioned power and and i i saw you deliver a, a session at a conference um a while back um on sustainability uh, and one of the things that you touched on when you were looking at various ways in which an event can address its sustainability was a subject to power and mm -hmm. i'm sure that you mentioned in that session that where possible you're trying to source mains power if you can to reduce the number of generators that, that are used um, improve the efficiency of the generators that are being used on site again when we're looking specifically at winter events are these city center locations giving you better quality mains power to actually power these, some are these um, some are without a doubt um, you know um, i'll be at um, at least two market squares um, this this winter that have got permanent power installations based on the fact that they've got a market going in there every winter. 
um, Salisbury and Bath. Um, give them a name check. Um, and you know they've they've invested on the infrastructure because they don't want generation and. Uh, notorious nature of market traders is that they'll probably bring something and plug it in um, that they shouldn't have there <laughs> and it'll trip so you can trail that back all the way to the to the box that they've installed and say yeah that's the one that's tripped it so it helps in the long run um, you, you know wherever possible sustainability is important so you've got to try and avoid uh, importing massive generators when actually you might not need them mm-hmm. um, or you might need a different type um, so far too often I see you know lorries of generators turning up with generators that are brought in to power a cabin uh, when actually you could probably do it with a generator much smaller than the one that's been brought in it might be a daft question anybody listening out there who, who knows the answer to this immediately then feel free to shoot me when you next see me on the street but is there a difference in efficiency with traditional diesel generators compared to summer and winter I mean presumably that they get up to temperature once they're running but is there a difference in fuel and the amount that they'll use? Negligible um, uh, as far as I'm aware there's not a great deal of difference uh, they may start up a little uh, more difficultly in the, in the in the winter but um, I think there's very little difference they're all um, compound sets you know they're all they're all encased um they're like a car in a way you know occasionally you might have a bit of trouble starting in the morning but that's it (laughs) um when we look at perhaps not saturation maybe the wrong word but uh, have we seen in the growth get to its sort of peak at the moment or are you still seeing new events coming along are people increasing their winter events um how how difficult will it be to actually grow further than it is at the moment uh, I think there's always room for growth, but I think there's, there, eventually with all things there'll be a saturation point. Um, and if you took every local authority in the UK and said you're having a Christmas market, there won't be enough traders. Mm. Um, uh, if you, uh, you know, but then if you look at the November the fifth events, you know, every club, PTA, uh, social club, school, rugby club, name it, you name it, will be doing a, a fireworks show. So that's an example that particular weekend of, of. Uh, I wouldn't say saturation point, but you know that is where everybody does a display. Um, you know, I, I, I don't personally want do one, but I help organise other people's. In in a previous episode of, of talking events, when you're on uh, on the show with with some of your colleagues, we looked at um, the subject of procurement. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I know it's a subject that you've, you've, you've had opinions on if people want to listen back to that, that, that previous episode you'll, you'll hear what, uh, what Mike had to say about that and, but just extending it a little bit further how does your own procurement process work in terms of sourcing suppliers so when you are contracted to stage an event for somebody how does your own procurement work and how have you found the best way to approach it is um, well um, the best way to approach it is on, on have a good uh, uh, supply management system um, whereby I will be looking for um, contractors that are a member of a, at least one trade association and, and abide by its code of practice if that is the case uh, one of my criteria I'll be looking at their safety record uh, I'll be looking at their insurances um, and then I'll be looking at their price for the spec that we send out um, and a combination of those factors should uh, generate um, good contractor subcontractor relationships i'll also be looking one of the most key things for me is i'll be looking at when they want pain um <laughs> and uh, probably one of the small, one of the most sensible things that uh, i would suggest to them is that um yeah if, if you trust us give us 30 days uh, if you don't trust us then uh, we don't do business with you um uh, far too often in the past we've been rung up by accounts departments whilst we're on the show asking for the check well if you well now we do we do backs now but if you try and find a checkbook in the middle of a rainy site on a, uh, under a marquee that they've just built for you it's virtually impossible 
So I'm a big fan of uh, getting terms right with contractors. Um, we've got an amazing payment record. We don't, we don't anybody never owed anybody a penny, um, and no institutional debt. So trust us. Our credit rating will be great. Give us good terms, and you've got half a chance of, give, of, of getting the work. Do, do you have a set of regular go-to guys, or do you change the suppliers? Do you, do you look at it based on locality and, and where they are in relation to a particular event site? Uh, yes, the sustainability cause comes in. If we're doing shows in Bristol, we try and use Bristol uh, suppliers where we can. Um, and then we try and share the love a little bit. There's no point in using the same contractors uh, all the time. Um, you, After 20 years of REM, you get to know who's good um, and who, who is reliable and who's fair and who's price is fair for the job so you end up uh, having sort of a roster but you'd share it around those rosters and always looking for new innovative companies to do things for us um, you know i'd say probably this year we've 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 met and used about another four or five new contractors this year on our shows so mm. each time we find them if they're good we'll stick with them so it's not a not a closed shop by any stretch can't afford it to be i think the market gets a bit monopolized if you close the shop and obviously, you look on event industry news as well for, of course. for, what, for what's happening. Look in the directory. <laughs> um, you mentioned technology, um, and event technology is something that we look at an awful lot through event industry news, um, perhaps in, in other scenarios. But have you seen technology impact on the actual event management side of things? Um, I know technology is used a lot by the actual suppliers themselves for various reasons, but how has it impacted uh, your own work? Um, it definitely has, yeah. I mean, we uh, there's all sorts of systems out there that we might be interested in using on our shows. Um, but just the modus operandi of the company's changed. Um, you know, I'm still a fan. I still tell the staff, I say, look, it's all very well emailing and 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 uh, being in contact with people that way. Occasionally, it's good to ring the client. They like a voice as well. Um, so we have a little thing on a Friday where if you you got to ring the client on a Friday, if you haven't if you've emailed them all week, just ring them on Friday and see if uh, if they're all right and then they go home a little happier for the weekend. So I think you blend uh, you blend new technology with uh, old school and some of the generation that I work with and I've worked with prefer old school and then you might send an email afterwards. Talk about it, send an email, not email and don't talk about it. You, you talked about your procurement process and sourcing contractors and sourcing suppliers um, and the criteria that, you, criteria that you would look for, how much of it still comes down to somebody coming out to see you, shaking your hand and having a, an instant trust of that person because they're a likeable or a trustworthy person. Yeah, it's very, very important. Um, we used to have production meetings uh, where we would all sit in the room, all the contractors, and talk about the show. Um, and they would come, you know, that's the lighting, the PA, the stage, everybody in there to just talk about how we're going to do it, what's the loading, and we'd walk away with the plan. Now we kind of do it by email, and I think you'd lose that, um, you lose that sensitivity and you lose that idea pot that the production meeting used to have. Mm. And you also... The idea is bouncing off each yeah, other in a room. You also, you also lose the creativity and you also lose the possibility of sharing. So, you know, <coughs> if you, excuse me, if you just take a truck, for example, if somebody's bringing half a truck and they're passing the guy that needs half a truck, we'll pick it up, pick his lot up and bring it with him. <laughs> that used to happen in the, the old sort of production meeting. I, I have to say, we still do have the odd old uh, production meeting, but... Nowadays, it's normally done on email, quote, and, and visual, as opposed to all sitting in the room. In fact, um, next week, I've got a very um, important production meeting um, where we're all sitting in the room because it's so close to the event that we need to sit in the room. We can't do it by exchange of email or technology. Now, we can all conference call, but laying the plan out and still looking, 
at the plan physically altogether, I think is still an important thing. We've, we've spent today's episode talking about winter events predominantly. Um, you mentioned that when the winter event season comes to a close for you guys, then January and February is, is fairly quiet and no doubt you're still in the offices and no doubt there's still work to be done. Yep. Um, but when we look then ahead to the, to the summer event season for next year, um, how are things changing there? And perhaps we can pick this up on another episode, who knows in future, talk about that. But you know, where will you go to once the winter event closes? Uh, what for a holiday? Um, we, we'll <laughs> probably start. There's, so we've got some key uh, long contract events. Uh, we probably start advancing them uh, from a trader perspective because there's no point in trying to book a trader whilst they're in a the market somewhere. Um, so you, you, you do it in the new year. The new year is our income portion revenue generation um, and uh, applications for trading at our events um, go out in the new year. Uh, and some of those events aren't till August. Um, but um, importantly for our clients, we get the income in in order to know where we stand. So you end up with a situation by May where you are in uh, a red, amber, green situation. If you're in green, crack on. If you're in amber, push again. Uh, if you're in red, then don't go much further. Um, so so our, our income generation peak January, February, March. So it doesn't really stop. May get a holiday. We'll see. I'd love to get you back on, on uh, talking events again in future then. Perhaps you can come back at, at, at another time and talk about the summer event season because uh, I'm sure there's all, all sorts of things that we could talk about on that particular subject. Sure. Um, I'm sure that perhaps people listening to the podcast may have questions for Mike. Um, if you do, tweet them at Talking Events. Um, I'm sure we can get them, get them to you somehow yep. and maybe uh, get a bit of a Q&A going. Ask Mike. How's that? Hey, there we go. Ask Mike is the hashtag. Um, tweet us at Talking Events. Um, for now, we're going to wrap up today's episode. Um, Mike Richmond from REM, thank you very much for letting us use your offices um, to set up our studio and, and do our podcast. Um, as always, you can watch a video of the podcast uh, via the Event Industry News YouTube channel. You'll be able to visit eventindustrynews.co.uk to listen to the podcast. It's also available as a download on iTunes. Just search for Talking Events. Thanks for listening.